3: What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamota and Danny Abdeljabar. Happy Friday night, my friend. How are you?
2: Chilling, man, as per usual. And happy Friday to you, too.
3: We are recording this on, on an unusual recording day. Very rarely do we record this podcast on a Friday. It is Friday, April 15th. We have no idea when we're actually going to release this episode. It's kind of like one of those shows that we are uh, kind of stockpiling. We're in the process of stockpiling shows in the event that, I don't know, one of us can't make a show or something like that. So we're trying to record as much as possible so we can always have steady uh, content. But today we're going to do an episode on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is history related and kind of current depending on when this episode releases. Hopefully, when this episode releases, the war in Ukraine is over and all is well and there's no threat of nuclear war. I'm not holding my breath. That is going to be something. But um, yeah, how's it going? Sorry for my long-winded rant.
2: <laughs> no, nah, man, I'm doing good. And, and and you're right. I think that you know when we came up with this idea to, to do the Cuban Missile Crisis, it, it felt like the right time to cover this particular history topic because there are so many people right now that are you know ratcheting up the uh, nuclear war fear and you know it's not totally unfounded um but you know in researching this i think i found some pretty interesting parallels and you know maybe if we have time we can go through them but uh you know just mostly i wanted to you know explore the one time in history where we came closest to an actual nuclear war uh just to give a little bit of context around how scary that is and and how quickly Uh, you know the situation can devolve into you know uh, calamity but also uh, I think what we'll probably cover at length is that oftentimes you know these types of crises are political you know uh, in nature and less so military Uh, and we'll definitely talk about how you know politics kind of injects itself in and 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 in, at least in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, certainly doesn't make us any safer. Um, but, yeah, I don't want to give away too many, of the <laughs> uh, too many of the goods before we jump in. But where do you want to start?
3: Yeah, well, to your point, Justin Raimondo's, uh theory on foreign policy is that all foreign policy is domestic policy. Okay, uh, Where I want to start, though, just like with, with the modern-day context, I have trouble believing how comfortable people are with, like, the looming threat of nuclear war upon them. Same.
2: Yeah. Yeah, same. Like, I feel
3: like I'm the only, like, there's an alien that (laughs) only I can see. Like, that little green man on the plane, or the clown Mm -hmm. on the plane. I don't know. I think you're uh, thinking of the Twilight Twilight Zone, Zone like, the man on the wing, and you're like, what the fuck? The man on the wing. wing." I feel like I'm the only one who can see it. Everyone else (laughs) is, like, going on with their day and happy and... I go to bed and I'm scared about nuclear war. I um totally get, like, um, you ever watched Tremors?
0: Uh, the the I don't movie think
3: Tremors. That, no. Do you know? Oh, man. With Shia LaBeouf. You gotta watch that. No, it's no shy. It's an old school um, Kevin Bacon, like, sci fi, corny horror film. But oh, it's one of the best ones. I was thinking of, of holes for some reason. I think that was no, the Shia not one. No, <laughs> it's not holes. Well, both in the desert. This is about. Like little worms, like these monster worms that pop out of the ground and they eat people. Okay. And they appear in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, and they like terrorize this small town. And one of the characters is uh, named Bert Gummer, and Bert Gummer is like a, a you know, he's a, a gun nut, uh, prepper who's been preparing for World War Three his entire life. And he finally, you know, gets to use all of his like survival skills and his <laughs> weapons on these, uh, on these, uh-huh. uh, these worms that are popping out of the ground. But they made like a whole series. It's like a whole. There's a whole cult following behind this show or behind this movie.
0: What but it and it know, it was one of my favorites crisis?
3: as a kid. What's that? It has nothing to do with it. But I just feel like, uh, yeah, that really went off in a tangent. Um, anyone who who grew up watching Tremors will will definitely relate to this. Um, if I had an argument with uh, with Al about about Tremors or Twister, mm-hmm. and uh, she said Twitter. I'm not. She said Twister, and I said Tremors, but um, she can be wrong. But um, <laughs> yeah, my point is that I feel like Bert Gummer, the character in that movie, um, the Prepper, like the Prepper, and like we used to laugh at Preppers. But yeah, I just feel weird. I just feel it's weird um, how hostile the rhetoric can be uh, when there is this, uh,
2: you know, possible threat. Um, but- yeah, and I mean, we we talked about on the show at least a few times, you know, certain proposals that have been making their rounds in you know in the Beltway about how maybe a tactical nuclear strike could be beneficial, uh, in particular. Uh, to show China who's boss, uh, and there was also an article that we uh, took a look at for one episode where they were saying that a, uh, a small nuclear war would do really good for global warming because it would kick up a bunch of sediment into the atmosphere and thus cool off the Earth. And it's just, I feel you, man. It it just feels like like are we crazy? Like this is what we're we're talking about. This this is this is like on the table right now. <laughs> Uh, but I I, I I can empathize with you in that respect. It's just it's weird.
3: It's like that that viral video that uh, from I think it was like a year ago, where this couple got into a fight with this guy over snow. Like someone was they were shoveling snow in this guy's yard, and he came out and he started yelling at him, or it was vice versa. They got into a huge argument over shoveling snow or a snow blower, and um, the couple starts yelling at the guys like. You know, fuck you, fuck you, you pussy. We're gonna make your life hell. And the guy comes out with a gun. Jesus. And they're still screaming at him like, "Do it, pussy. Do it, pussy. We're gonna make your life hell." And the guy ends up killing him. It's like a very crazy video. Fuck. But that's what it reminds This is what it reminds me of. Like uh, it's, you know, we're, we're really we're, we're really we're really playing with fire, and we threw diplomacy out the window. But yeah, mm-hmm. let's get to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Cuban Missile Crisis is when JFK almost got everyone in the world killed over okay. the <laughs> neoliberal obsession with international credibility. Okay, there's the podcast. So when JFK <laughs> the sound almost clip got for every you. when JFK almost got everyone in the world killed. The Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean,
2: that, that's kind of staunchly different take from you know the the basic history book retelling of the cuban missile crisis i think that you know the the history or at least the uh, approved history of the u.s would tell you that jfk uh, actually saved the world because he's calm cool-headed guy and, and maybe they'll throw a bone at khrushchev too because khrushchev also decided to make a deal instead of going to war but i mean you obviously have a reason for saying that you think that JFK almost got everybody killed, and what well, would that be? Well, I think,
3: first and foremost, I think JFK is an interesting figure, and there's good and there's bad about him. Um, this is one of the bad things that he did. Um, but I'm, I'm honestly just quoting a lot from this Atlantic article, The Real Cuban mm-hmm. Missile Crisis. It was written about 10 years ago or 11 years ago, and I'll just I'll just quote right from it. Um, On October 16, 1962, John F. Kennedy and his advisors were stunned to learn that the Soviet Union was, without provocation, installing nuclear-armed medium-intermediate-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. With these offensive weapons, which represented a new and accidental threat to America, Moscow significantly raised the ante in a nuclear rivalry between the superpowers, a gambit that forced the U.S. and the Soviet Union to the brink of nuclear Armageddon. On October 22nd, the President, with no other recourse, proclaimed in a televised address that his administration knew of the illegal missiles and delivered an ultimatum insisting on their removal, announcing an American quarantine of Cuba to force compliance with his demands. While carefully avoiding provocative action and coolly collaborating each Soviet countermeasure, Kennedy and his lieutenants brooked no compromise. They held firm despite Moscow's effort to link a resolution to extreme issues and despite predictable Soviet blustering about American aggression and violation of international laws. In the tense 13-day crisis, the Americans and the Soviets went eyeball to eyeball, thanks to the Kennedy administration's placid resolve and prudent crisis management, thanks to what Kennedy special assistant Arthur Schlesinger Jr. characterized as the president's combination of toughness and restraint, of will- nerve and wisdom so brilliantly brilliantly, brilliantly controlled so <laughs> matchlessly co- collaborated that it dazzled the world the Soviet leadership blinked Moscow dismantled the missiles and a cataclysm was averted every sentence in this above paragraph describing the Cuban Missile Crisis is misleading or erroneous and I'm quoting I'm still quoting this Atlantic article it's very good But this was the rendition of events that the Kennedy administration fed to the press. This was the history that the participants in Washington promulgated in their memoirs. And this is a story that has insinuated itself into the national memory. Right.
2: Very interesting.
3: You know, like I was saying before, I think there's a lot of things that are misunderstood about Kennedy. You know, he's a very romanticized president because he died so young. I mean he was assassinated. Right. I mean he was assassinated, yeah. <laughs> he was assassinated. He was martyred in many ways. Yeah. He was martyred in in any way and you know, there's I guess there's some things that were pretty admirable about him, but there was a lot of regression, I feel, that went that took place during his administration. Um I think a lot of the people he had in his uh, in his in his staff were were crazy and kind of led him into uh, the wrong directions and and um, Mike Swanson, who's a you know he's a hedge fund manager um, slash historian, he writes really good books on the on the military industrial complex. Uh, he has a book called The War State, with, uh that that I recommend reading. He basically makes the case in The War State that Kennedy was about to end the Cold War. Like he, he went through so much with like his advisors being crazy and the CIA, and um, you know all these people he kind of realized were were crazy. That he was actively trying to end the Cold War, and you know he doesn't like he doesn't really go into his assassination and try to like point fingers or blame or do an investigation on his actual assassination. He just kind of lays out the case that. JFK was was um, really trying to turn like he saw how crazy a lot of people were in his uh in in the government and he you know wanted things to change but as a congressman um you know he was a cold he was a hardliner on the cold war just like uh, a lot of other democrats at the time um, when when Eisenhower was at the end of his second term Democrats portrayed him as the old man asleep at the wheel, kind of like, like Biden. kind of like, kind of like um, how you know people portray Biden when they want to criticize him. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, and Eisenhower is an objectively more impressive person than Joe Biden. You know, the guy who love him or hate him, the guy was the um, you know leader of Allied forces. Versus, you know, Joe Biden, the credit card salesman or the, the credit <laughs> well, card. Well, hey, give, uh, him, give
2: him some time, man. Maybe he'll maybe he'll avert a nuclear crisis of his own. You, you never sure. know. <laughs> well, let's hope so. He pulled out of um, Afghanistan, didn't he?
3: <laughs> yeah, sure. He pulled out of Afghanistan and, and now we're, uh, you know, buying uh, like meals that last like 60 years. Um seriously now i'm now I'm building a bomb shelter, <laughs> but you get the point he Eisenhower was having health issues at the end of his second term. he was getting up there in age, and um you know that was just the popular way that was just the easiest way to get at him I mean even in the democratic primary, um the other Democrats were going at Biden for his age now um They blamed him for the Missile Gap. The Missile Gap was the belief that the Soviets were surpassing the US in their ICBM uh, capability. They were um, able to push this narrative of the Missile Gap because in 1957, the Soviets launched Sputnik, which was the first artificial satellite to orbit the Earth. and. They were also um, successfully testing um, ICBM units. Um, and they were using the same type of rockets uh, to, to launch Sputnik up. Um, but there was also this secret report commissioned by Eisenhower that warned that the Soviets were ahead of, of uh, missile technology in the U.S. And basically what it said was that there were hundreds of hidden Uh, Soviet ICBMs ready to launch a nuclear first strike on the U.S. And that America lost its first strike capability. Well, this ended up not being true at all. And the Soviets actually had far fewer nukes than the U.S. had at the time.
2: Yep. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the threat of the Soviet nuclear program, you know, in the time especially leading up to the Cuban Missile Crisis was, let's call it exaggerated. (laughs) And its capability. So at the time of the missile crisis, the Soviets had 36 ICBMs, so intercontinental ballistic missiles, 138 long-range bombers with 392 nukes uh, attached to them, uh, and 72 uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, so SLBMs. So you can compare that to the U.S.'s arsenal at the same time where they had 203 ICBMs, 1,300 long-range bombers with 3,000 nuclear warheads, and 144 submarine-launched ballistic missiles. So if you add it all up, the U.S. had like nine times more to work with uh, with you know, missile-wise uh, or nuke-wise than the Soviets did. And, and that's just just the numbers. The quality of the U.S. missiles outmatched the Soviets by a lot, too, Apparently, Soviet uh, ICBMs were reportedly very inaccurate and more importantly, they took hours to prepare for a launch. And most importantly, I think, is that the U.S. had deployed their arsenal all over the place. So they had these intermediate-range Jupiter nuclear missiles and they were deployed in Italy and Turkey, so right on the Soviet Union's doorstep, and those missiles had the capability to strike Moscow in minutes. And the U.S. also had these nuclear-armed Thor missiles that they set up in bases in the U.K. The cherry on top of this is, of course, you know, the Ron Paul, uh, you know, uh, um, military doctrine, which is a bunch of nuclear-armed submarines. Uh, And we had a bunch of them that were lurking off the coast of the Soviet Union, you know, just ready to shoot them. Now, the Soviet Union also had a lot of subs that were loitering on our coasts as well, but we had twice as many. Right. And all of this is kind of important to think about when, you know, especially before we talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, because when you get down to the bottom of the dangers of the crisis, it was less about a strategic shift in military capability, like for the Soviet Union. And more of a political theater that kind of went off the rails and threatened everybody.
3: Yeah. um, And that's important to bring up, like, you know, the Jupiter nuclear missiles. Have you ever seen a Jupiter nuclear missile?
2: Yeah, I actually look at some pictures of them before um, the show.
3: Yeah, they're crazy. They're huge. Yeah. Um, if you ever saw like a, um, I think they're in the space museum in Washington D.C. I think they have. Yeah, um, they got the air and space ones. Yep. Yeah, they have. They have them there. They're fucking. They're humongous. They're. They're not yeah, very trying discreet. To, trying to get
2: a size on them. They they're not are very discreet. sixty feet long, <laughs> and they are about almost nine feet wide, uh, and I don't know where the weight is here. Oh, uh, 110,000 pounds. (laughs) It's a big fucking big missile.
3: (laughs) They're not very discreet. No, (laughs) not even a little bit. They're not the type of system that um, you don't see. But um, let's put a pen in that. I want to talk about um, Kennedy and uh, Eisenhower. Still, because okay. basically, during Kennedy's transition meeting with Eisenhower, Eisenhower told him, "He's like, hey, the missile gap that you campaigned on did not exist. It was complete. You know, it was just complete political bullshit. It wasn't real. Fake news. <laughs> it was. Fi- it was fake news. I would know. I'm. I'm Dwight Eisenhower." And um, this was later all confirmed by Robert McNamara, his uh, his Secretary of Defense. Now, of course, you know, Kennedy was either misled or he was uh, just, you know, playing the politics card because Kennedy was briefed by the CIA during the 1960 election that the Soviets, uh, their ICBMs were much lower, but... Basically, he was given like different um, estimates from the CIA and the Air Force, and the Air Force um, gave him a much larger figure. They were this, the Air Force was much more hawkish than the CIA at this time, mm-hmm. and they gave him a much higher figure. And he, you know, he went with the more political figure or the more po- the, the more politically convenient uh, to his campaign figure. Um, right. but you know, I'm not trying to say that Eisenhower were, was perfect in any way. You know, he did a lot of things that I disagree with in the 1950s, but I think at the very least, Eisenhower did understand how horrible war was, and he really understood that he he understood that what was happening at that time in the 1950s because it was a really unique time, and it was a time when you really see the state and the merge with defense contractors like you see the, mm-hmm. the it the birth of the military industrial complex comes out of world war 2 like all the business interests that contributed to the war effort really they just wanted to you know keep the money flowing and, and in 19 and then you know they, they they got political doctrine um you know like the and N, uh, NSC 68 you know signed mm-hmm. um, and put into action that really just uh, Sub sublim, uh, some what word am I thinking of? Um submitted submitted them. Submitted them. Submitted them. <laughs> submitted them as full time um um I guess you could say parasites to the government. I was trying to think of a yeah. nicer or uh more no, politically correct no, that, term to say. No, but that parasite makes sense. is the West word that um, you know, that they, they um they're guaranteed existence. And that, I mean, that happened under Truman, but Eisenhower recognized that all this was going on because you know he knew these industries and he knew the military really better than anyone at the time. Now, um, Eisenhower, he ended the Korean War. Um, He had, uh, you know, he had cut the military budget by one third. And he repudi- repudiated, um, you know, NSC-68. But what his strategy was, was relying on the threat of massive nuclear retaliation. You mm. know, he was like a strategy guy, bridge player type, who, um, you know, liked to bluff a lot about nuking people. Now, the Kennedy administration, they reversed Eisenhower's um back to something more like what truman's foreign policy was and if you listen to like the lat like the the debates between kennedy and nixon during the 1960s or the 1960 election kennedy was attacking eisenhower for being weak on the cuba situation well what's interesting is that plans to overthrow fidel castro they actually originated during the eisenhower administration (laughs) And that was one of the main things they spoke about during, um, you know, their transition meeting when, um, you know, Eisenhower told Kennedy that Castro has to go because, frankly, there was just too much business interest in the U.S. and Cuba. So, um, you know, that obviously leads to the the, the Bay of Pigs plot, which was uh, conceived by the CIA, uh, you know, shortly after Kennedy was sworn into office and uh you know the operation goes terribly wrong you know it was dependent on um you know the the two projected events that did not occur um such as the assassination of castro and then you know the the widespread uprising against the government and uh it only took uh, i think only two weeks for the cuban military to to repel the invaders but um the meeting between eisenhower and kennedy is like a real interesting thing to read about because just like the age difference and like the gap of experience, and um, you you read things like how how Eisenhower was like trying to show he was doing things to like to show the awesome responsibility of the president. Like he's like, hey, look at this, look what I can do. Here's a football. Like he he like threw him the football. He's like, look out with these like with that uh, football, you can launch nuclear codes anywhere. He like ordered a helicopter right in front of him. He's like, "Hey, look at this," and he like makes a radio call, and a helicopter comes p- picks him up on the White House lawn. It's like a real interesting thing to read, um,
2: but but yeah, what do you think? I mean, it it's definitely interesting to hear about the political aspect on on Cuba because as I was doing research about this, you know, it became very apparent to me that. Kennedy was very fixated on this Cuba situation, and I guess it it didn't really occur to me that you know maybe part of the reason why he had such a you know such a, a sticking point with with Cuba was because he made it his his basically one of his pla- his campaign platforms. You know, uh, he, it, it was the boogeyman. You know, it, it was the boogeyman. Much like I don't know how some. Politicians might call out, you know, China or Russia, depending on what side of the aisle you fall on, or you know, I don't know how like Trump might have been calling out, uh, fucking the border crisis, right? Like the, the 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 border issue, or how Biden might be, you know, calling out, uh, I don't know. Pick a thing, right? It, it it didn't it didn't make sense to me when I was reading about this. Why Kennedy Kennedy was so Fixated on Cuba, but you know now that you bring it up, the fact that he was kind of attacking him from the right there, attacking Eisenhower is on the Cuba situation. It, I guess it kind of makes more sense now.
3: Yeah, and it just you know Eisenhower basically had the same policy as Kennedy, so mm-hmm. it was just like a politically it was kind of like how um, everyone called Trump a Russian colluder, but mm-hmm. Trump's policy towards Russia was like. Pretty status quo. It actually took Obama's policy a lot further in arming Ukraine. Like that okay. juiced up, that juicing up period of the Ukrainian army between the 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 Euromaidan and the you know the the civil war that breaks out in 2014 2015. That juice up period of Ukraine losing battles to uh, to uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. And losing battles to like this this breakaway republic rebellion, and now they're you know they're they're not I wouldn't say holding their own, but they're kind of holding their own against one of the best militaries in the world, um, and that all happened under Trump. Like that that period of time of when that when the Ukrainian army uh, improved so much happened under Trump. So right, it's kind of a it's kind of a weird. It's just not accurate to say that his policies were were favorable to russia
2: right and it it just shows that the sometimes the politics that you hear you know is not reflective of the reality on the ground right and there's there's often a big change there but you know maybe maybe we can take this opportunity just to talk about like what happened in the cuban missile crisis and i don't think it i don't think anyone that listens to this show hasn't heard about it but you know just wanted to give a quick recap on kind of the events and some of the, the, the things that precipitated around it um, just to give some context. And then after we do that, then we can chat about like, what was the, what was the political thing that, that, you know, we were told and that, you know, quote unquote history tells us and what was the reality on the ground and the factors that played into it. So let's talk about Cuban Missile Crisis for a bit. So you remember my comment a little earlier about how Soviet ICBMs were poor in quality? Um, I think just to expand on that a little bit, the fact that these missiles took forever to launch, it, it basically meant that they didn't serve as an effective deterrent against the U.S. if the U.S. decided to strike first. Now, what I mean by that is that, sure, they're fine... You know, missiles on their own. But if they, if we wanted to use them as a counterstrike, it just would take too long to spin them up as a countermeasure. Most of those missiles would likely be blown up by the U.S. while they were being fueled. If the U.S. just did decide on striking first, now, like I said, it, it doesn't make those ICBMs useless. You know, in the event that the Soviet Union decided to strike first, they had the capability to practically hit anywhere in the U.S. in minutes, and You know, the issue about accuracy really doesn't matter very much when you're talking about missiles with a blast yield that's greater than literally every nuclear bomb ever detonated in history, right? So, you know, you don't have to have pinpoint accuracy. Just somewhere close, and you get the point across, you know?
1: Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story and I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that. But uh, we have some other breaking news as well and that's Harry's razors. So Harry's razors, they're carving their own path in grooming to give you better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products. So they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors and they would get dull right away. And often I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving, products have changed things for me so it's a really great quality shave i never cut my face and uh my face feels nice and smooth also their shaving cream smells really good i really feel like a new man whenever i use my harry's razors these razors are some of the best out there they're for an awesome price as well they're german engineer blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half as what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just three dollars at Harrys.com/brohistory. That's Harrys.com/brohistory for a three-dollar trial set.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. and largely still have uh, the capability to completely annihilate the other if they decided to strike first. That wasn't the problem. The, the, the problem was the disadvantage that the Soviet Union had, and that was that they lacked the ability to retaliate quickly with their ICBMs. You know, what they did have, though, were these really great short and intermediate missile systems that were super fast to put into action. Now, those missiles, you know, stationed in, in in Russia or in the Soviet Union at the time, they could really ruin, like, any European country's day. But they just didn't have the range that was necessary to hit the U.S. On the other side of the world, uh, the U.S. It, 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 it makes
3: you think—it makes you uh, just, like, think how frightened Europe was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> yeah. Because they were more— absolutely. I, they were more scared than the United States, the European governments. They were like, what the hell are they doing? Oh, I, for, I forgot which is who para- said this. W- which is parallel to what's going on now, I think, to a lot yeah. of... Maybe not to the governments of Europe because they're... But for the most, people, for sure. But for, I think for the people, um, the people I've I talked to from Europe This, this like, is a really
2: good quote from that Atlantic article that you were quoting before. And it said, oh, shit, who said it? It was something like, it was annihilation without representation right so basically like being aligned with the u.s uh basically meant that if they fucked around and started a nuclear war they're gonna die without having any say in it you know uh and i think that's that's basically how they felt then it's probably how a lot of people feel right now (laughs) um but yeah you know that's that's that was the situation anyway not annihilation
3: without representation the the other point is that it's it's, um be, being an ally of America just makes you makes it more dangerous for you.
2: Mm-hmm. In some ways, for sure. In,
3: in some, in way. some I ways, I guess that's subjective because you can find contradictions. But in some cases, being an ally of the U.S. could be more in dangerous the case of for you. War. In the case, <laughs> in the case of Ukraine, it's more dangerous for them to be an ally of the United States. Maybe could in be. the case of like. Maybe in the case of like South Korea. I guess you could even make an argument against that as well um maybe
2: anyway back back to the the cuban missile crisis so the soviet union has a little bit of a disadvantage for their retaliatory capability um and at the same time the u.s basically botched the attempt to overthrow the castro regime during that pay of pigs invasion that you were talking about earlier and that really presented the soviet union with a potential solution to their problem here we have you know cuba who is a fellow comrade in the global communist revolution, right? And they're an ally to the Soviet Union. And they're also having, like, this personal beef with the U.S., you know, especially around the Bay of Pigs. And so Khrushchev and the Soviet Union, they basically propose to Castro. They say, hey, we've got a deal for you. We think it's mutually beneficial. How about you just park some medium-range Soviet nukes, you know, in Cuba? and for the cubans what they would gain would be a quick and devastating response to any future us incursions right so they have nukes now they have these great soviet you know medium-range missiles and that by itself should ideally dissuade the u.s. from fucking around anymore in cuba and for the soviets they get to upgrade their nuclear deterrence and, and I'll underscore the, the word deterrence here, right? So it's not first strike capability, they already have plenty of that, right? It's more like, hey, if you try something, we've got you know missiles that can hit you in response. And by stationing them in you know Cuba, they're just 90 miles from the US, so they, they've got perfect range. It seems like a, a perfect deal. Now, the drawbacks mostly fall on the Cubans in this case. Talk about annihilation by, uh, uh, without representation here. They become a bigger target for the U.S. just by having these missiles. But after some back and forth, you know, uh, Castro takes the deal. And I think part of the reason why he does is because the precedent for placing these mid-range missiles, you know, basically on your enemy doorstep was, that was initiated by the U.S. already. We were already doing it um, by putting Jupiter missiles in Turkey. Now I want to point out, just again, because this is important, that the proximities of these missiles they really don't make a difference for a first strike. Both the US and the Soviet Union had those capabilities. They can pop missiles on each other's capital within minutes, no big deal, you know, with their existing stockpile of ICBMs. Everybody was gonna die, regardless. But the strategic importance was, you know, mainly in a response to the first strike. And that's why, that's why this option was considered and eventually taken up by Castro. And so in late August through September of 1962, the Soviet Union starts covertly shipping over a ton of stuff to Cuba, including 42,000 soldiers, a bunch of helicopters, bombers, patrol boats, anti-aircraft guns, fighter jets, and of course, medium range ballistic missiles. And all of these make their way to Cuba. Now, because the US had been beefing with Cuba this whole time, you know, they were already doing a lot of monitoring of Cuba using the U-2 spy planes, which were really great because they can fly super, super high and take really great pictures. Um, And so they had been monitoring this. And on on October 16th, Kennedy gets briefed with these photos that were taken from a recon flight, you know, and it showed these Soviet missiles in Cuba. And, you know, the CIA starts telling Kennedy like, hey, this is a problem because they can hit Washington now in minutes from Cuba. And... Yeah, this, is, this is where the kind of the politics starts playing in a little bit. Kennedy starts getting super mad about this, but not just because he thinks this is a threat to the U.S., which I guess you could say it was. I mean, the threat was already there for, for a strike if they wanted it, but you know, this is now like a new, new piece to the puzzle. But I think really why he was so mad is because the midterms were coming up, and you know, his political rivals had already been talking about how the Soviet buildup in Cuba was you know, like their, that was their campaign issue. They were hitting him saying, hey, you're letting the Soviets install missile platforms 90 miles from Florida. What the fuck, right? And so this is starting to really get under Kennedy's skin. You know, now privately, Khrushchev had already told Kennedy by this point that the buildup in Cuba was totally defensive, basically saying like, hey, we're only putting this stuff here, you know, all this military and all this hardware to protect Cuba from you fucking around in Cuba, just like you did in the Bay of Pigs. But we're not going to put any missiles there. And so Kennedy was like, all right, that's fair, but if you put missiles there, that's my red line. So he drew his little red line and he said, no missiles in Cuba. And now we've got evidence from this U-2 plane that they crossed the line. The Soviet Union crossed Kennedy's line. So at this point, Kennedy's got to put up or shut up, right? And, you know, so he has this meeting with like nine members of the National Security Council and a bunch of other experts. And this becomes known as the Executive Committee of the National Security uh, Council, or XCOM for short. And some of the members basically, (laughs) they start drawing up a bunch of crazy ideas. And a lot of them were, let's airstrike them, or let's do an airstrike plus an invasion. And Bobby Kennedy really liked this idea for whatever reason, because he fucking hated Castro. Um, and Bobby and Kennedy
3: is portrayed as like the most so, like his sober minded brother who was steering the <laughs> the uh, ship in the right direction.
2: If it was up to Bobby Kennedy, we would like we wouldn't exist. I'm, and I'm God. a
3: Bobby Kennedy fan. Like I like Bobby Kennedy more than JFK, but um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's pretty damning on to this hear about issue stuff though, that Bobby Kennedy he, the, was on the wrong. stuff that he was endorsing. He was endorsing like um really the most extreme uh responses to it like just full out invasion, like that's what he was he was like no let's not even do uh let's not even do like uh airstrikes let's just invade him
2: yeah let's just go right now yeah it's it's, it's crazy he was he like not trying to make a judgment on on bobby kennedy overall but on this particular topic like he was fucking crazy he was crazy and so you know all this is is bubbling and and you know kennedy john f kennedy jfk he he also felt like you know he can't not do something because you know that would hurt him it, it would hurt the us because you know if we cave on our own red line then that's bad and it makes us look weak but more importantly it would hurt him politically but the problem was that if they attack cuba and kill a bunch of soviet union soldiers that's war that's like immediate war with the soviet union and so he's he's trying to balance and juggle these two things and i I can't even imagine what it was like to be kennedy at that moment um just because he kind of put his foot in his mouth made a drew a red line very publicly they crossed it and now you got to decide what to do so Kennedy settles on this plan, and you mentioned it already. It was to blockade Cuba, but he doesn't call it a blockade. He, he calls it a quarantine because a blockade would also be an act of war. You know, so it's just a little legal ease here, right? You, you can think of it like how uh, Putin is calling the invasion in Ukraine not a war but a special operation, right? Uh, hey, the so,
3: Korean War, the podcast that we still owe you, like five more episodes on,
2: uh, was a police action, not a war yeah yeah exactly so here's the thing while there was evidence of missiles in cuba the intelligence that the, that kennedy was getting was suggesting that you know the, the nuclear warheads had not yet made it to cuba so they had the missiles but not the warheads so the plan for this you know quarantine was to set up basically like a naval version of the tsa around cuba to prevent the Soviet Union from, you know, arming Cuba with those warheads. And so on October 22nd, uh, you know, at 7 p.m., Ken- Kennedy goes live on TV and he announces that there are nuclear weapons in Cuba. So I'm going to quote him. He says, "With within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation uh, on that imprisoned island, the whole uh, of this offense built up a strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment on the shipment to Cuba is being initiated. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launches from Cuba or any other nation in the wet or against any other nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union uh, on the United States requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. So here he goes again publicly stating And drawing a new red line he's like hey you guys fuck around if if Cuba shoots a missile if anyone shoots a missile not just at us but literally any other country at in the Western Hemisphere we're gonna count that as Soviet Union attacking the US and we're gonna have to respond militarily so at this point the US goes to DEFCON 3 which means that missiles and bombers can be launched within 15 minutes of a presidential order And at the same time-
3: DEFCON 1 means nuclear war is upon us, right? And then DEFCON 2 means we're very close. DEFCON 1 is the maximum readiness. DEFCON 5 is the lowest readiness. DEFCON 1 basically means, okay, we're say goodbye to your family.
2: Right. So, all right, we're at DEFCON 3, not quite DEFCON 1, but still pretty bad. Castro decides to call up a bunch of troops. So he calls up 300,000 men to defend the island. He also, like, uh, sends his brother to, you know, uh, take an artillery force and surround Guantanamo Bay. Uh, And I think he also sends Che Guevara to, like, make preparations for, like, an impending guerrilla war. You know, so they're fucking ready to fight. And, you know, 100 miles away in Florida... Uh, we start seeing a a US buildup of troops so there was like something like 120,000 servicemen uh, that gathered in Florida for an impending invasion and you know this this force was nearly as large as the one that was deployed on D-Day so huge huge military operation everybody's like ready to go Uh, at the same time Khrushchev you know he's like oh shit this is too hot uh, and decides to Order the missile freighters that were on route to Cuba to turn around and come back to the Soviet Union because he didn't want to risk them being boarded and And or you know captured Um, But he does this interesting thing which is he goes ahead and says the rest of the freighters the ones that don't have missiles like the ones delivering food and fuel They can keep going right so he's just like trolling Kennedy a little bit You know because if he searches those ships and finds nothing it just makes the u.s. Look stupid Um, and so a lot of shit's going on right now and you know, tensions are super high. Kennedy ends up delaying the quarantine by one day uh in order to look for uh international support. Um, you know, cause he's trying to he's trying to get everybody to agree to what they're doing, because you know, let's be honest, what he's doing is kind of illegal. Uh and that gave Khrushchev enough time actually to turn some of those freighters around and and go ahead and sneak them into into Cuba. So they were able to get the warheads to Cuba. And, you know, the whole time the U.S. had been flying these recon sorties over Cuba and some of them were flying as low as a thousand feet off the ground, uh, which is really starting to piss off Castro because, you know, they're obviously violating Cuban airspace. uh, But they had been told to like stand down, like chill out. Um, But his patience is growing a little bit thin here. So Kennedy finally comes around to signing the quarantine officially you know, and, and that's in full swing, but there's so many problems with this. It was kind of like cobbled together so quickly that, you know, XCOM and, and the military are struggling to figure out like, what's the right approach to actually go through with the quarantine? And you know, like, how do we stop these ships from coming into Cuba? You know, like, you can't just blow them up because that would be war. Like you have to, we have to figure out a way to like, I don't know, disable them somehow. And, You know get them to stop without actually just like killing them you know so whole crazy ass debate goes on and what's important is that there's just literally so much radio traffic that's going around around this whole time that getting really really important messages across to leadership was literally taking hours you know and that's kind of important uh because anything could happen in this moment and you know we're talking about the 60s here, you know, they don't have the things that we have now and tensions are super high. A lot of chess pieces are being put in place. So, you know, really the, the decision-making happens on the ground. And that's, that's what was incredibly scary about that. Now, Khrushchev on the other side, privately decided that, you know, basically we can't go to war, that, that war is a bad idea. Um, but, that he couldn't buckle the U.S. pressure because that would destroy him politically, right? So you have on the one side, Kennedy feeling like, shit, they crossed the line, but I can't do nothing because that makes me look bad and midterms are coming up and Khrushchev is basically experiencing the same thing on his side. He's like, well, shit, I can't go to war with them, but I also can't walk away without a win on this because it would destroy me politically. So they're both feeling this political pressure and it's kind of fueling and influencing their decision-making. So what Khrushchev ends up coming up with, you know, after like a late night with, you know, all of his advisors is that he proposes to withdraw the missiles, uh, from Cuba in return for Kennedy to promise to never invade Cuba. The thing about that is that he wrote this super long thing and it obviously needs to be translated and then it needs to be transmitted to Washington. And that would take eight hours to get to the U S that's a really long time so again this is before that like special phone num- phone line that they set up between Washington and, and the Kremlin you know this is before the internet <laughs> right so literally any little thing could have happened in the eight hours that it took for th- for that deal to get sent over you know it could have been a war uh, the, a war could have broken out before the message even got there so and we got Castro again. So Castro obviously is losing his patience. You know, he, he got super annoyed initially that Khrushchev uh, ordered the freighters to turn around. Um, and he was also pissed off at the Soviet ambassador in, in the U.S. because he was denying the existence of the missiles in Cuba at the time. Because again, you know, like the orders were taking super long to go around. He didn't have any instructions On what to say or what to do so he was just denying everything despite the fact that everyone has evidence of it and so that's important because the like the public existence of missiles in Cuba was Castro's like ticket to safety in a way you know if if everybody in the American public knew that you know Castro's got nukes then everybody in the American public would be like maybe we shouldn't invade them (laughs) you know because that's a bad idea so Coming back to these reconnaissance flights, because these were also really pissing off Castro, and while they definitely had the ability to shoot down these planes, they'd been holding their fire, and so he gets really mad, and he writes a letter to the UN, and he basically threatens to, you know, shoot down any planes that violate Cuban airspace. So at the same time, Kennedy finally gets the, the deal from Khrushchev, and he really wants to take that deal. But the press at this point is really, really hyping up the idea of invading Cuba, right? So now he's got this extra pressure, right? Press is all saying, yeah, there's going to be invasion. We're about to invade Cuba, whatever. And if he takes this deal, it's going to make him look weak. Again, the politics around this is palpable. So, you know, what is he going to do? A little bit later, the Soviets pick up a... Uh, a U-2 plane flying over Cuba and the Cubans shoot it down, right? And this is the first, I guess you can call this the first casualty (laughs) in this conflict. And, but again, shit takes a really long time to get transmitted, right? So, you know, the U.S. doesn't know that one of their U-2 planes got shot down over Cuba just yet. It would take a couple hours beforehand and kind of around the same time. And this is fucking crazy and kind of like bad timing by Khrushchev in this respect, but... Around the same time, the Soviet Union is conducting a missile test, a nuclear missile test in the Arctic, and you know they they detonate a bomb, and the U.S. simultaneously sends a uh, plane over, you know, from Alaska to, to go collect samples of the air. I don't know why. It's just bad ideas all over the place, right? Let me. Th- we're we're in a crazy conflict. Let's blow up a nuke, and then the other crazy idea is, hey, they just blew up a nuke. Let's go take samples of that. Like all of this is happening at the same time. So the plane gets lost, and inadvertently, it crosses into Soviet Union airspace, and it's stalked by these MiGs, these fighter jets. Um, Eventually, the plane gets back to the base in Alaska, and the funny part about this is that the pilot had no idea. He was like, he almost died. He had no idea that he was being tracked by those planes. He had no idea that he crossed into the Soviet Union. He only figured it out when he landed, which is nuts. And, okay. So around the same time period, I'm just like highlighting all the shit that's bubbling up here. And this is so important because, like I said, communication is real slow and literally anything can happen. And literally a lot of things were happening that could have gone wrong. And this is the last thing that I want to talk about. Um, For two days, an American destroyer had been tracking a Soviet uh, sub, you know, and they finally caught it. They finally caught the sub. And so the, the protocol that they were told to do was to signal it, uh, to get it to come up to the surface so that they can talk, right? This was all part of the, the blockade, the, the quarantine that they called it. And so they, they start by just dropping some grenades in the water and blowing them up. And that's how they were signaling it. Um, but they didn't get any responses out of that. So they start using depth charges or practice depth charges. In any case, they're blowing shit up near the sub. To basically get its attention and this is kind of important because the way that these subs worked at the time is that you, you just can't communicate from underwater with pretty much anyone so they can't communicate with the with the warship because they're underwater so they'd have to come up to communicate with them but they also couldn't communicate with the soviet union at all so they're god knows how far under the water they have no idea what's going on and a lot of the people on the ship are thinking shit we're getting we're those are depth charges did the war start already is it war and that was a nuclear capable submarine and on this ship this is the famous like story where they had they had to make a decision on whether or not to strike and use those nuclear torpedoes um and there were three officers on board and the, you know, the, the rules were that they all had to unanimously decide on whether or not they would fire this nuke. And one of them was Commander Vasily Arkhipov. And he was the dude who said, nah, let's not fire the nukes. And basically averted nuclear winter with that decision. He was like the one guy that actually had some wherewithal to be like, nope, not going to do that. So all of this shit is happening literally it could have been the sub it could have been the u2 plane being being shot down it could have been the uh the, the plane that crossed into soviet union airspace and there was probably a million other situations that could have popped off for a war all of these things are happening and you know literally every hour counts the crisis ends you know ultimately diplomatically you know and Uh, A deal is reached between Khrushchev and Kennedy where the Soviet Union would pull out of Cuba and the U.S. would, you know, promise not to invade it. But secretly, Kennedy offered to pull the Jupiter missiles from Turkey, but he also did that in a backdoor, sent his brother to go pass along that message and even told, you know, told the ambassador to say, hey, if you if you leak the details of this secret deal, the deal is off. So, you know. But we wouldn't learn about this until years later after all this shit was declassified. That's the story (laughs) of the Cuban Missile Crisis in a nutshell. It's just crazy.
3: So what do you think about this? And I think I know what your answer is going to be. So much of this was politically motivated with the midterms coming up. When Biden runs for re-election... Mm-hmm. Which, I think he probably still will at this point, right? I don't think anyone else is behind him. Do you think he's still running? Probably, right?
2: I mean, or whatever. That's yet to be, that's yet to be seen. But even though he, with that question off the table, we're we still have midterms coming up, right? Yeah. And that's still politically important for the president, regardless of good, the fact that he's good, not on the ticket. Point. You know,
3: I'm wondering though. When someone's running against them, I guess we live in such a short news cycle now that people, people, there might be a whole new crisis in, in two years from now during the yeah. election.
2: Will right. We all thought att- that Afghanistan was going to be the hot button topic for the midterms, and now check this out. <laughs>
3: Do you think Republicans running against them are most likely going to? Um, they're going to criticize him criticize him for being too weak on yeah. on Russia. They're not going to be yeah. like, oh, look at this mess you got us into. They're going to be like, oh, you're it is, not strong enough.
2: Yeah, they're going to be like, oh, you you let Putin invade Ukraine and kill all those people. The blood is on your hands because you didn't do more to stop big bad Russia. Yeah,
3: they're going to hit them and with then, that. And then the Absolutely. solution would have been some vague promise about credibility and alliances. Well, mm-hmm. what we would have done is that we would have been credible for to our our partners in nato and we would have built a stronger alliance and, and would have shown putin that we mean real business that would have been that yeah. that's the speech that's the level of uh of uh foreign policy rhetoric you're gonna get mm-hmm. we're gonna and just like of- talk to our credible partners from across almost like a pr statement from like a company that just like killed a bunch of uh of uh like seals with an oil spill or something you know it's yeah. it's, it's, it's
2: well i mean it's, what, what's what's eye-opening about that is that we would i definitely think that that's an option for the republicans for the midterm elections i definitely think that that sh- will be a talking point point. and what's funny about that is that uh they are they would be effectively attacking a democrat you know, from the le- I can't even call it from the left, right? It's like attacking a Democrat on a Democrat issue, right? Where you know the Democrats don't like Russia, and you know the Republicans don't like China. It's like, oh well, you know, you weren't very good when you were in power against your boogeyman. <laughs> you know, it's it's fascinating, and it's just it sounds just like how Kennedy was saying how, you know, you, you know, you're not doing enough on Cuba, and in the in, in the same vein. Uh, or, or on the missile gap but at the same time like Eisenhower had already had shit in play and he was just being misled so but it, it's just the political theater of it right like how how are they how are they going to position this to, to, to benefit politically in the midterm absolutely if Trump see that runs happening. if Trump runs
3: again he'll just be like
1: I like Putin but you know he knew I would nuke Moscow he knew I would do it he wouldn't have you done wouldn't it done but it. he would, He wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it.
2: If Biden didn't steal the election, Putin would have never did this. He He saw. He he saw Biden as weak.
1: He was old and feeble.
3: Okay, he wouldn't. My my Trump isn't very good. Um, Well, I guess time will tell. We'll see. I'm very doubtful it will be a sub. uh, The the uh, his criticism will be of substance. I'll
2: just put it that way. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of and get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
3: Yeah. Now, I I guess just just to recap everything. In short, the Cuban Missile Crisis was started due to the, the deployment of... Intermediate-range Jupiter nuclear missiles in Italy and Turkey. Mm-hmm. And putting them in, in striking distance to Moscow. Because, we, you know, you, you hit on this, and we, we spoke about the size of the Jupiter missile, but again, it's above ground. It's not in some silo. It's a big thing that you can see from anywhere. Meaning that they are extremely vulnerable to a first strike. Which also means that they encourage a first strike because mm-hmm. they're not a deterrent. Like if you can like a, a a deterrent is is like a submarine. Like you can't see the submarine. You know they're out there and they can poke out and they can destroy you. But if you're gonna, if it's gonna, if it's gonna just be out there and for you to see, like you have to assume like an easy that's not, target. Yeah. It's, an e- yeah, it's it's if it's an easy target, then you then You have to assume it's it's not meant to be there that long, and it's meant to fly in the air and, and kill you. So um, it's so l- let me let me go back to this because um, this Atlantic article I thought is a real good article. It's it's basically kind of recaps uh, Sheldon Stern's book on Kennedy, um, who's a, a Kennedy historian who wrote who wrote uh, I think three different books on on the Cuban Missile Crisis. But let me quote this. The other missiles of of October, Kennedy's deployment of the Jupiter missiles was a key reason for Khrushchev's decision to send nuclear missiles to Cuba. Khrushchev reportedly made the decision in May 1962 declaring to a confidant that the Americans have surrounded us with bases on all sides and that missiles in Cuba would help to counter an intolerable provocation keeping the deployment secret in order to pre- present the U.S. with a fait accompli. Khrushchev may very well have assumed America's response would be similar to his reaction to the Jupiter's missiles, uh, rhetorically the rhetorical denouncement, but no threat or action to thwart the deployment with a military attack, nuclear or otherwise. Khrushchev explained his reasoning to the American journalist Strobe Talbot. Americans would learn just what it feels like to have an enemy missiles pointed at you. We'd be doing nothing more than giving them a little bit of their own medicine.
2: Mm-hmm. And he, th- and he thought that, you know, Kennedy wouldn't do shit about it because they didn't do shit about the, the missiles in Turkey.
3: You can also look at Khrushchev. Khrushchev was like a peasant. Did mm-hmm. you know that? he was a, He was like a literal... Like peasant from the Russian Empire, who rose up to become the the uh, the leader of the Communist Party, like the top guy after Joseph Stalin. And Kennedy is a rich boy.
2: If I was a rich boy, <laughs> he's, like a, he's a he's a,
3: he's a rich boy who's young, and uh, I think Khrushchev probably thought he could walk over him walk all over him now I think the Soviet Union was also motivated because um, they really did believe that the Kennedy administration was hell bent on destroying the Castro regime which they seemed yeah. like they very they were I mean after all the administration had launched an invasion on Cuba and um the CIA was, um, you know, I don't know how many clandestine operations that were um, th- that were going on in the, C- the Caribbean islands uh, involving like training up rebels and things like that. But I mean, how many times did the CIA try to kill Castro?
0: A like lot. Fifty?
3: <laughs> Is it, I forget the number. It's it's something ridiculous. Where it's like, how did you not kill him already? You tried fifty times. One of them. My favorite
2: was the uh, was the bomb and the cigar. Yeah, (laughs) that idea was uh, kind of funny. How many? You think?
3: I mean, come on, man. There's better odds of him getting killed by a shark. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, come on. If you if the CIA tries to assassinate you 54 times, it's a two percent success rate. I mean, you're you're more likely to be killed by you know, a lot of other things, like by cancer, by heart disease.
2: Well, certainly for Cara, Castro, I'm, it would have been cancer.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess Castro did die of cancer, but I mean, Castro died when he was in the eight. He died when he was in his eighties. So, yeah, I think once you die in your eighties, it's, it's pretty much natural causes, right? Um, but. Where was I going with this? Um, I mean, I think the Kennedy administration was was uh, aware that their policy in Turkey with these Jupiter missiles was going to provoke the Soviet Union, because the Kennedy Kennedy was recording his meetings on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, mm-hmm. You can find them on YouTube. His executive meetings where he talks about this, and one of the meetings he says. Um, why does he put these there though it's just as if we suddenly begin to put a major number of medium-range ballistic missiles in turkey let me read it more um sarcastically because that's the tone of it it's like like why does he put these in there though just as if we suddenly begin to put a major number of medium-range ballistic missiles in turkey now that'd be a goddamn dangerous i would think and then uh big george bundy the national security advisor Points out, well, we did, Mister President, but he was making a joke. You think I'd sarcasm? Maybe I'll play it, hmm. but
2: yeah. Is it, the the point was that he he. It's not that he didn't know; it's that he was like being he's being facetious about it.
3: Yeah, he's making a joke now. Um, and then the other thing that you 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 hit on, and. I don't think it's worth diving too much because you did a good job explaining it. But you know, the, the missiles didn't really change the strategic balance. Like the, the missiles in Cuba didn't make us more. Like missiles existing in in Cuba did not make Americans less safe because we already were extremely unsafe. Right. So it missile's wasn't
2: like, a missiles a missile is <laughs> <yeah>, a missile. <laughs> yeah, missiles a
3: missile and. There's there's meetings, there's there's um recordings and there's um you know, Kennedy's outright sayings like or and people in his administration are basically saying I mean, a missile's a missile. If you die from a missile that's ninety miles away, or if you die by, from a missile that's that's uh three thousand miles away, still a missile that killed you. <laughs> like
1: no difference. Yeah. And
3: like, what's,
1: what's important is that
2: at the time we didn't you know, we didn't have the capabilities to even attempt to shoot like an ICBM out of the sky. Even now, it would be kind of hard, although we'd, we have better chances now. But like at that time, it, it didn't fucking matter. It didn't matter. Once once someone decided to shoot a nuke, you're fucked. It's pretty much it. Everyone's fucked, really, because that's nuclear war.
3: Yeah. What's the difference if a missile comes from Cuba or if it comes from the Soviet Union? Mm-hmm. Or if it comes from a submarine?
2: That's right. A missile a
3: missile. Alright, we're an hour and ten minutes in, or so. I say we wrap this one up because it is
2: Friday night. Absolutely. I think the only thing I want to talk about just is is just to kind of underscore how there's this idea that you know Kennedy was was a hero, and I guess you know ends justifying the means. I guess you could call him a hero for not just going ahead and pushing the button and just saying fuck it let's just nuke cuba right uh or or whatever but really it was kind of like just this conflagration of all this this political shit right and you know i got to bring it back to to the situation in ukraine and and how and and i'm having trouble drawing these distinctions so maybe you can help me a little bit but it it does feel as if you know we're playing a very dangerous game of chicken and as was the case in you know during the Cuban human missile crisis and what seems to be the defining factor in decision making is not strategic certainly isn't empathetic to human life but it's just kind of political like the options that we put on the table are political
3: well, you know, government at the end of the day is always doing things to legitimize itself. And if a government is not. The purpose of a government is like to protect property rights for its people, to, to make sure. Like the whole reason why you buy into this monopoly on violence over you is that this monopoly on violence is going to protect you from outside threats. And if. They can't do that, or if they're perceived, if they are perceived not to do that, or if they are perceived not to be the baddest, um, the biggest baddest monopoly on violence out there, then they start to lose legitimacy, whether that be warranted or not. Politicians can play off that and do a significant amount of damage to you, um, if if uh, if they play their cards right. So politicians are always and especially in America in the, in the 20th uh in, in the 20th in, in the 21st century have always operated under under that so the parallels are very similar um they're both very they're both uh, dangerous games of chicken and um I think right now, a lot of uh, things that Biden, the Biden administration is doing is to, um, they're trying to like legitimize American hegemony without the sacrifice. So they're using, you know, Ukrainians as cannon fodder. So, um, But they still want to like be able to be like, oh, we acted, and you know, we're we're doing something. But here's here's an opportunity
2: to stick it to Russia, right? Yeah, Uh, Western society
3: Western society can't stomach casualties. So here's a question I got for you: We can popular if people start dying,
2: American soldiers start dying. Well, uh, here's a question that could potentially be in that vein, and then we can wrap it. What if, you know, Putin can't hit us with sanctions. That's just not something that he can retaliate with, right? But, uh, you know, if one of Putin's gripes uh, with the situation is NATO expansion, what if he counter-expands to balance the power? So, you know, obviously taking the Donbass would be one way, but that doesn't really affect the U.S. in, 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 in a great way. What if they go to, like, Venezuela or, you know, some other South American country that's sympathetic, you know, or to Brazil or some shit like that and decide to set up shop there and you know, creating, like, a new Cuban Missile Crisis 2.0, you know? Like what what do you think the chances are of that and how do you think the U.S. would react to something like that, given the history of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well,
3: if they made a million—if they—they um, would probably bomb that country. And remove its government from power. You think we'd go the Bobby Kennedy route? Well, it depends on what they did. If they I mean, we were just talking about like if they put nuclear missiles in, in uh Venezuela, I mean what's the difference of them like even more so now? Like they can nuke us from anywhere. Right, they can send hyper. They have hypersonic missiles that can carry warhead. That can deliver warheads in five minutes. Allegedly, (laughs) allegedly, but I mean, I think according to Ted Postal, that's true. And it's you know, what's the difference if they launch a missile from South America or if they launch a missile from a submarine or they launch a
2: missile from um, you know wherever in Russia? I don't really. I mean, they got got nuclear capable bombers. They got nuclear capable like bombers in Venezuela that happened back in 2018 you know we didn't do shit then
3: so it it really it really depends on Um. it really it it just depends on like the the willingness to go It, it depends on like how it's perceived by like a lot of different actors by the media and by other countries um, hmm. I wish I could give you a better answer right now but i think I think you're onto something
2: honestly I think you're onto something and I think that perception has to be a, a negative political perception for there to be yeah one, it
3: depends like- on a that's exactly what I'm trying to say it depends on the political perception it doesn't it doesn't matter what changes on the like the, the military or strategic uh, disadvantage or advantage it, it's it's purely political like how that's picked up in the news if the corporate mm-hmm. press decided to just be like okay Oh, my God, Venezuela has Russian bombers there. We have a president who's not defending Americans. We need to act now. And they started pressing them. If you... Right. The the media... People think the media being like real hawkish is new. The media has always been real hawkish. The media was real hawkish in the 60s. The media is real hawkish in the 70s. The media has always been very, very hawkish. So it's not a new thing. The media has been very hawkish. In World War One That like people think that we're experiencing new heights of like authoritarianism or, or censorship. We did an episode on Woodrow Wilson in, in World War One, mm-hmm. how they would just round up journalists and throw them to jail and they had like street squads that would beat the shit out of dissenters against World mm-hmm. War One. Um the Civil War. Yeah, we think it's like we think it's like the new. It's not, you know. Well, I'm just saying, like in America right now, um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of um, backlash against people who are speaking out against U.S. foreign policy. That's right. You and I have both exper- have both experienced it firsthand. However, it's not comparable to like what the government was doing in World War One to to mm-hmm. dissenters. Like magazine, like the only way to transmit ideas back back in those times was through magazines and. Magazine publications were just shut down. Super
2: easy to keep people
3: quiet. Yeah, very, very much easier to keep people quiet. Um, There, there were literally like you know patriot clubs where they would, they would go kick the shit out of people who were anti-war. That's so it was. It was. um, It's kind of like a stock market, you know, it goes up and down. Maybe there will be a time in america that will will people be like smarter and uh not as crazy but it will probably go back up again (laughs) where people are crazy (laughs) again maybe maybe in 10 years from now people will be like oh man we were really close to getting to something really nasty but maybe 10 years from then 20 years from now there'll be like another event where everyone's like oh people go crazy again annihilate these people That's just the human nature, unfortunately. Um, All right. I'm not making sense anymore. So I think (laughs) it's time to end this podcast. Sounds good. Thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Bro History. Uh, If you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show. You can also support us on our Patreon. You can join our Slack which is a fun way to communicate with us. And we have a great channel. So come to our Slack channel. Join us on Patreon. Anything else? No, man. I'm good. All right. Peace.
0: Peace.